0: After school cool. Welcome to the Make an F-School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Make an F-School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, a division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. Today's episode focuses on how educators and youth leaders should welcome diversity in their schools and programs. Several studies and articles indicate that Houston is the most diverse city in the nation. One such article written by AJ Misereti indicates that Houston has no ethnic majority and nearly one in four residents are foreign born. As a result of the city's changing demographics, the level of diversity on school campuses continues to rise. The consequence of having an increasingly diverse and multicultural student population has increased the importance for educators and youth workers to create culturally responsive and welcoming atmospheres. To discuss this issue is my guest, Dr. Stephen Cherry. Stephen is an associate professor and program director of psychology at the University of Houston Clear Lake. His research interests include immigration, religion, Asian Americans, and civic life. He is the author of Faith, Family, and Filipino American Community Life and the co editor of Religious Movement Across Borders. In 2006, he received the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion Distinguished Article Award. Additionally, he has served as faculty fellow at the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice University. Stephen, welcome to the Make an F School Cool podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, it's my pleasure to be here, thank you. I appreciate you taking some time. Um, I would like to get started with some of your background information. Can you tell our listeners how you got interested in diversity issues?
1: I think that's both uh, personal and professional. Right. so I, uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in New Orleans, uh, grew up in a diverse community, uh, moved to Houston, moved into a diverse community, and now as an adult, married into diverse communities and have a multiracial um, household. So from a personal level, uh, very interested in the dynamics of the communities I've lived in, the dynamics of my own household, and at the professional level, um, I'm in the Department of Sociology at, at uh, UH Clear Lake and just very interested in the changing dynamics uh, that immigration, I'm, I'm largely an immigration specialist, the changing dynamics that immigration brings to the United States um, politically, culturally, religiously, just how that demographic transformation is impacting uh, the country.
0: Now, I heard you say in a previous presentation that Houston's diversity is different than the level of of diversity in the rest of the U.S., but eventually the U.S. will look like Houston. So how Houstonians handle diversity issues now, the country would follow. Can you explain that statement? Absolutely. So
1: if if you've watched any of the news or any of your listeners have, have listened to the news lately, there's been quite a bit uh, made about the uh, the last census, and as the data has been rolling out, we once thought, according to the U.S. Census, that uh, eventually the country would be a minority-majority nation. There would be no um, one dominant group, but a, a host of, of smaller groups that make up the majority of the population. And once thought that that would be about 2050, and the last census gives us a sense that uh, that is happening faster than we originally thought. What makes that interesting for Houston is that we're already there. Uh, and you kind of started that off uh, as we began our talk today. When you look at the dynamics of the Houston metropolitan area, uh, you know, not just Harris County, but uh, the surrounding counties that make up the metropolitan area. Houston is the most racially, ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the country. So when you look at kind of the balance of groups in the Houston area, we are a reflection of what those future projections are going to look like in the United States. Looking at the um, last, I guess, you know, looking last couple of decades of our mayoral history um, our candidates in um, in Houston not just the candidates but those who have actually become our mayor you see a reflection of this politically where we actually have the most diverse history of mayoral candidates of any major metropolitan city uh, in the United States meaning that you can't get elected in the city being there or addressing singular issues for a single community, you have to campaign on, make promises, and address the diversity of the city to get elected. Which means that we've had white mayors and black mayors and straight mayors and gay mayors, and you know you name the gamut. And socioeconomically, um, and that's a reflection of how that works. And there's a
0: historical precedent. For this next question is twofold. First, please explain why it is critical for people working with students during school and after school to recognize the diversity youth circulating throughout their campuses. And secondly, what type of pre-planning should they be doing prior to students arriving? I, I would like to say, just,
1: just, uh, just as a humanist, I, I think it's important that we embrace all of humanity. But unfortunately, that isn't for everyone. Not everybody is going to go in doing this work, doing what's right in terms of embracing their, the diversity of their student populations because it's the right thing to do. And so what I always like to say is that we don't have a choice, right? Um, w- when you have a city as balanced racial and ethically as we are, when I say balanced, uh, I mean, there are some larger than others, uh, don't get me wrong, but in terms of just you know being a, such a multiracial, multi-ethnic um, society, the students that come to our schools come from these communities and we can no longer think in a model that only addresses one community or part of a community because we're losing the opportunity then to educate the communities that we serve. And if we don't go into it with the mindset that we have to do this, if we don't go into it with the understanding that if I only teach this, I miss these communities, the force, right, the coercion there is that most educators don't want to lose any of their students. And students know when you aren't addressing them. Students know when you're not interested in their community, in their issues. So if you're interested in trying to educate, which is what we do, then if you're not going to do it for the right reason, you have to do it because you're going to lose your students. And there's a great deal of work that has to go into that. You know, when you try to go into a setting and know that you are going to be educating diverse communities. Number one, you've got to know yourself, right? You've got to know what you don't know about the communities you serve, and you need to go in and understand, do your homework, do your research and understand those communities with the best understanding, knowing that an individual student doesn't represent their community. They don't speak for their people, right? But when you go in with the general knowledge base, both of yourself and of the communities you serve, and you do some deep reflection about some biases that you may have, because we all have biases, then when you go into a circumstance where you're educating then in these kinds of uh, communities and settings, the students immediately pick up on this. They know when you are willing to learn, when you are willing to listen, when, hey, how does that work in your neighborhood? How does that work in your community? What is your experience? What is the history that I'm missing here? What do, you know, When you're approaching it that way and you engage the students in the dialogue of their own education, where they are owning their education and they feel invested in teaching you in the gaps in your understandings of their communities, that's when real knowledge comes about.
0: Yeah, um, I've worked with a lot of different schools, I've been in a lot of different educational settings and I've heard a couple of times where people will say, you know, this is our tradition." And uh, I think sometimes people lose sight between, you know, this tra- tradition, which has been a part of your past, but now you're dealing with changing uh, student populations, changing interests. And some of those things don't relate to um, all, all students, um, which kind of segues me into the next question. you describe racism as an emotional connection to ignorance. Uh, can you elaborate on that statement?
1: Absolutely. When we look at racism as a structural and a action behavioral um, aspect of any kind of hate towards groups, individuals, prejudice can exist in the mind and not be acted on, right? Racism is acted on. And we know that the majority of the disconnects that happen between groups of people was simply that they are ignorant of each other. They haven't been educated about each other and they don't have personal connections to these communities, to these individuals. This is the whole reason why segregation was so effective to reinforcing stereotype prejudice and racism uh, in the united states is because people felt comfortable and could recall their own experience of those people having not really engaging or having any sort of true relationship um with them you could say oh those people are like this and those people are like that and you really don't know because you didn't go to school with those quote-unquote, right, we would make sure we put that out there, Uh, other, you know, those other people, right? When segregation then finally was eliminated in terms of legal segregation, we could talk about the host of whether we're segregated today or not, right? But when you started breaking this down and you had people eating together, going to school together, working together, playing together, then that emotional commitment to that ignorance that example of oh i know those people are like this and you know they do this and they do that and it's an emotional because it could be defensive of their own communities of their own perspectives but they don't have a knowledge and an intimate relationship with other individuals when that breaks down that emotion starts to shift they start to learn they start to understand and that emotional commitment is what actually starts to undo some of these racist tendencies is because all those people, well, except for my neighbor, except for my doctor, except for the person that I go to school with, except for my coworker, all of a sudden that starts to undo that emotional commitment so that when we look at dismantling racism, it's not just a matter of educating people, which is the cornerstone and so important so that they know better and understand, but they have to emotionally engage in people so that they are committed, not just to their own communities and to themselves, but realize the humanity of the people that they live and work with.
0: Now, we're having so much discussion regarding the diversity and the the differences of others. Um, And, you know, depending on who you're talking to, uh, there's so much vocabulary and jargon that can sometimes be confusing for other people, say a layman person versus an educator. Um, One example is cultural competency and stereotyping. Can you explain the difference between the two? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Cultural competency simply means being educated and fluent in cultures, right? So that you know there's this, uh, and forgive me for not having the, the, the editors, the name in mind, but there's this wonderful set of books called How to Be a Perfect Stranger. Mm. And it's very encyclopedia-like, where you could look up, it's based on religious communities, so one level of cultural diversity, and you could look up a different faith tradition or denomination, and it will tell you what is appropriate to wear, at special occasions, you know, weddings, funerals, these sort of things. What kind of present, no present or not, what kind of exchanges in terms of how should you greet, should you shake hands, should you hug, is it, you know, it, it gets into kind of like a real quick, mo- uh, you know, um, roadmap of how to be a perfect stranger. Know what you should know, at least basics, before you go to that community and and engage. In, you know, many communities are forgiving, you didn't know, it's okay, we'll, we'll educate you. But when you go in with some level of cultural competency and you engage with a little bit of core knowledge, whatever it may be, you know, so we're talking about race and ethnicity, but a culture can be religious, artistic, you know, on and on and on. When you've done some of that work and you have that fluency, it allows you to engage communities that are not your own, and even if you don't do it right, even if you don't have your facts straight, the fact that you've done your homework and that you are attempting to be fluid um, goes a long way in communities where people are like, you know, hey, he's trying, right? Stereotypes, on the other hand, are making uh, judgments about individuals or groups based on whatever knowledge people have out there. So that knowledge could be their personal experience, which is, which is not generalizable, right? It could be what they saw in a movie, what they saw in the news, which may not be accurate. It may be what a friend told them, um, or it may even be what they've read, you know, in some social scientific papers. The interesting exchange that I see between cultural competency and stereotyping is that you do have individuals from time to time who feel that they're culturally competent going into a situation and instead of asking and engaging and dialoguing, make the very assumptions, oh, you're like this, so hey, and, and they end up turning that cultural competency into stereotyping right And you can see then that that individual is coming from a good space right that they' that they're trying right But that's the level at which you know someone's attempt at cultural competency can lead to stereotyping and that's a very a very important line you know but instead of assuming that you know and it's right and you have the facts straight right that you engage in dialogue you know, and you ask, hey, mind if I shake your hand? You know, just like, you know, if we were to go out to eat, what kind of food would you like to eat? Are there any kind of dietary restrictions that you have instead of assuming, you know, or whatever it may
0: be? Yeah, I think that's one big hurdle that we have to get over is the fear of asking questions. I think, yes. you know, it's easy to just assume certain things and we don't want to come across as being dumb or ignorant or, um, maybe putting a person on the spot, but uh, you know ask questions and not being afraid to learn about them as individuals as well as the cultural group, I think um, can resolve some of the you know stereotypical things that, that often come up. It's sort of it's a really important stuff. point you
1: know because we uh, we really the majority of us have not been raised in a society that has given us the proper tools to ask those questions right. You know, Eric Holder said that you know, in terms of when it comes to, to 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 race, that Americans are cowards. Yeah. It's the one, so one conversation that we're afraid to have, but it's one conversation we should be having. Yeah. And the reason why we're afraid to have it is because we don't know how to ask the questions, and we don't we don't know how to go in because we've never been taught. You know, how do you do this, and and what's the right way, and how do you put yourself out there? Without, then, you know, you you talk about a, a, a cancel culture. How do you put yourself out there in earnest, trying to learn, trying to make a difference, with the fear that it comes out wrong and somebody completely labels you as this or that, when actually you're the very person who is the ally trying to make a difference. You know, just yeah. didn't have the just didn't have the tools to be able to say it in the right way or engage it in the right way. You know?
0: Yeah, and that kind of leads me to the next question. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of aspects of diversity. Um, One such is cultural variation as well as an individual variation. How do these two aspects make a person unique? You know, people make assumptions
1: about where you're from and you know where you grew up and what that means and these kinds of things and you're obviously influenced by those cultures but it has absolutely in some cases nothing to do with how you're raised or what the experience was in your own household so that when we start to approach this we have to understand you know culture with a large C and understand, you know, some of these traditions and and variations along communities and peoples. But we also have to understand that individuals can take that, adapt it, make it their own and be completely unique, even from the communities in which they grew up.
0: I heard you say earlier that no one person from any particular uh, culture or community can be the spokesperson for that entire community. It's like we all as individuals, even though we may align with one with a particular group, we all have our own individual experiences, our own individual opinions, and um, those are the things that, you know, make us individuals. And it's so, so true. Yeah, a lot of times people want to uh make someone that they feel comfortable talking with and assume that that person is a spokesperson for their entire group and that's normally not the case we're more okay. diverse than that there may be traditions within a family
1: that you don't even embrace you know and that you you, you think you know you, you may be the 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 one person you know that that's you know completely unique just even within a family setting and i i give the example and I, I was born and raised in new orleans and i'm the only person in my family from louisiana right (laughs) yeah so you know mom's family are all finnish immigrants and my dad's family are all from texas Mm. you know and and i had this conversation with my dad the other day you know i'm like as new orleans as new orleans kids, you know (laughs) And, and, and my dad's like he goes like you know Stephen, that's that's not who we are and I'm like well but that's who I am and yeah. I'm like when I think celebration I think root beer crawfish and watermelon mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, 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 and you know it's one of those things where you know simply by spending the first 13 years of my life in New Orleans the sights the sounds the smells the food you know that's that's home right even even though nobody else does that you know mm-hmm. my dad won't even touch a crawfish.
0: Um, Well, my next question is, many schools and after-school programs will frequently invite community members to visit their programs. What advice would you give the staff at these programs regarding making everyone feel welcome when they plan these events? Do their homework
1: and go beyond, right? So you have to immediately know who you serve and make sure that if anybody from that community shows up, that you have thought through the best way to welcome them. There is um, a circumstance of non-English speakers and that's a possibility. Um, We see this across generations. You open up talking about uh, you know the immigrant population uh, here in Houston. Just because a student speaks English doesn't mean that their parents do. Um, and you want to make sure that you have linguistic skills available, maybe not your own. You know, you, you can't just learn every language immediately, which would be wonderful. Uh, sign me up for that, right? Um, but you want to be able to have people on the night so that there are questions that, you know, sometimes you can't quite put into translation what you're trying to express, so that they have a joy or a concern and something that wants to be expressed and it's not landing. You wanna make sure that you have, you know, people there who can communicate so that you're getting the full message and that there is no confusion there. You wanna make sure that you have things opened up to community variation. You may have members of the community, for example, for religious reasons in which men sit separately from women. You want to have an opportunity that will allow them to do that so that you've created a space that you can do that. If you have food at an event, you want to make sure that you've thought through who can eat what. You don't want somebody showing up. There's nothing worse than showing up to an event and there's lots of food and it smells good and you have dietary restrictions in your own household. You smell it, you're hungry. There's nothing there for you. To eat. There's so much that you want to do. Your signage um, in multiple language, your advertising, and anything that you have up at the school. You want the community to come in, and you want them. If you've got a poster of students for an after-school program or something up in the classroom or in one of the halls of the of the school. You want that poster to have a kid that every individual from the community is going to identify with. They're going, you want them to come in and say, oh, wow, they've got the food for me. They've got linguistic abilities for me. There are pictures of us
0: here so that when people come in, they feel welcome. Uh, Stephen, before we close, do you have any final thoughts? I
1: just, uh, you know, it's a conversation you and I were having um, before we, we, we started. I think we are in a really unique place as educators right now, that um, we're in a circumstance in which many of the issues of diversity that are important to us, important to our communities, are making local and national headlines. It's in the news. It's in the minds and the mouths of our students. We have a, an unprecedented opportunity to be able to teach issues of diversity and inclusion just because of the times that we're at. And I'm hoping that we all find those opportunities take the best advantage that we can despite whatever Restrictions come our way, or whatever political climate um, might be there, that we're able to embrace this moment for what it is, because it it has been, to be frank, scary at times. You know, there are things that those of us as educators we've known this all along. Some of the things that are going on in terms of rampant inequality, and you know, you know, this sort of issues we know, but. It's out there now where we can see it, we could hear it even more. And so we've got a great opportunity and I hope that uh, your listeners uh, take
0: the charge um, as educators and with it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of the Making That School Cool podcast. I really appreciate your insight and your wealth of information on this topic. It's been my pleasure, thank you, anytime.
1: Making after
0: school cool. As always, I want to thank our listeners for joining us, where our topic is welcoming diversity in your schools and after school programs. Please join us for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to the after school time field.